0: Hello, and welcome to Episode 8 of The Cognitive Dissident. I'm your host, Samuel Claiborne. A small note before we begin the show, it is spring here in New York State, and there are lots of birds singing, so you will hear them in the background. I hope you don't mind. Today's show is going to try to cover a lot of ground as we discuss the war in Ukraine, war and human rights in general, implicit biases concerning media coverage of war and conflict, and how the media are essentially leading us around by the nose about the proportionality of different conflicts going on around the world. Let's start with Ukraine. While one can argue whether NATO's eastward creep into former Soviet bloc countries was provocative or not, and ill-advised or not, I personally think that NATO's expansion was provocative, I'd be the last person on earth to argue that the Russian invasion of Ukraine is in any way, shape, or form justified. Like most of you, I've endlessly watched footage of the barbaric attacks on civilians, the insane use of artillery close to nuclear reactors, and Putin's Trumpian inversion of reality wherein he claims to be fighting fascism while resembling the most famous fascist in history whose similar land grab initiated World War II. I've found myself infuriated, incensed, profoundly depressed, and distressed. I've also swerved from my usual pacifism to unusually hawkish thoughts that may or may not be sensible. These thoughts echo many Ukrainian journalists and politicians in that they center around stopping Putin now because he is power-mad and will never gain enough power, territory, or money to be satiated. But while I don't think the man or the military and oligarchic cabals that surround him are suicidal, am I really in favor of risking World War III on my gut instinct, especially since so many dictators have a tendency to burn everything down on their way down? Do I really want the USA and a totally united Europe, NATO, the EU, Sweden, Finland, etc. to call his bluff? Is it a bluff? Do I think, as President Zelensky does, that World War III has already started and that the only way to stop it is to act quickly, with overwhelming force, to punch a nuclear-armed bully in the face? Or do I think that this is an obscene gamble? Indeed, do I wonder if the slightest provocation could kill us all? Ask me every hour and you'll probably get different and contradictory responses from me. Show me rows of dead kids and babies in the Ukrainian streets, and I'm likely to want to bomb every Russian soldier, plane, and ground vehicle in Ukraine to pieces and then burn those pieces. Damn the risks. Show me the movie Failsafe or school me on Russian and American nuclear war doctrine and the history of how close we've come to nuclear Armageddon in the past, and I'll probably argue for mass Ukrainian nonviolent civil disobedience. I come from a pacifist background, yet I believe in the right of self-defense. But I also believe that violence tends to beget more violence. But I also believe that bullies need to be stopped, and… you get the picture. But while all of this turmoil and thoughts of vengeance and World War III have swirled around my head since late February, gaining force as the Russian onslaught has increasingly targeted apartment blocks, hospitals, and bomb shelters, I've also started to feel extremely manipulated by the media. I'm not talking about Fox's proto-fascist Putin fetish and apologia, but rather mainstream and also to a large extent left of center media coverage. While there are definitely those on the far left who support Russia, and others on the left who seem stridently anti-war no matter what is befalling innocents abroad, I'm not speaking of those outlets, either. I'm talking about mainstream outlets, everything from CNN to the New York Times, down to progressive podcasts like Pod Save America and Pod Save the World and On the Media, and progressive outlets like The Guardian and HuffPost. Liberal stalwarts, if you will. What exactly is my problem with their coverage? In a nutshell, while the West is decrying Putin's barbarity... While all of these media outlets are parroting Biden's labeling of Putin as a thug and a war criminal, nothing is being said about nearly identical horrors being visited upon the people of Yemen by America's ally, Saudi Arabia, using American-supplied planes, bombs, rockets, and artillery. Although the horrors are identical, the conflicts are not. The Yemeni conflict can be seen as a civil war that then became a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran and their respective allies. It's a complex situation with no good guys that I can see, but it's the civilians caught in the crossfire who are paying for this war, a war that has been supported by the United States directly and indirectly since Obama was president. Since 2014, some 20,000 or more innocent civilians have died. Multiples of those have been horrifically maimed, displaced, and lost their livelihoods and homes. In Yemen, apartment blocks are being bombed. Hospitals, too. There are plenty of pictures of horribly maimed and murdered Yemeni children, and the Saudis have engineered severe food shortages there as well. The sad, unimpeachable fact is that the Saudis are exacting collective punishment, just as the Russians are, but they're doing it with our weapons. There's nothing like a total media blackout about the atrocities that our so-called friends, who apparently won't even take Joe Biden's phone calls anymore, are visiting upon the people of Yemen. Mehdi Hassan has done brilliant coverage of the disparity between what we say and what we do about war and human rights on his show on MSN. As Hassan has pointed out in the very same speech wherein Biden was claiming we'd no longer support Saudi Arabia's onslaught in Yemen, he also said we'd continue to support the defense of the Saudi state by selling them almost three-quarters of a billion dollars in weapons and maintenance contracts. Is all of this materiel and maintenance really defensive? As Hassan also stated, there's always a loophole when you're arming jets and helicopters and maintaining them and then letting Saudi pilots do whatever the Saudi royals want them to do with them. In effect, we're really talking about a distinction without a difference. In effect, Biden, Kamala Harris and company, as well as Obama, most of the Democratic establishment, and most of our media are gaslighting us. The massive piles of cash the Saudis have handed America's military-industrial-congressional complex have been cynically traded for more weapons used to kill more Houthi rebels and more innocents in Yemen, and all concerned doubtlessly know this. I have no love for the Houthis. From what I can gather, but can I really trust anything I can gather anymore? They are virulently anti-Semitic and profoundly cruel and brutal. But so what? Does that give us license to incinerate them, their women, and their children? And more to the point, are all the rest of the non-aligned, non-combatant citizens caught in the crossfire of this war also fair game as apartments, schools, hospitals, and private homes are bombed to rubble? Interestingly, there was true bipartisan support for sending more lethal weapons to Saudi Arabia. Something most Democrats and Republicans can agree on, alas, is fuck yeah, let's sell more weapons, enrich our weapons makers even further, take our kickbacks from them, our seats in Congress and on corporate boards, and scrupulously look away at the brutality wrought by those weapons, all the while piously discussing human rights around the world, including in, amazingly of all places, Yemen itself. The hypocrisy as the blood money is handed to us, not even under the damn table but out in the open, is stupefying. As I said, there is no media blackout, but a glance at media sites and social media sites like Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram will immediately show you an avalanche of outrage at Russia and empathy and cheerleading for Ukraine, and virtually nothing about the exact same barbarity being prosecuted by our so-called allies. As I say, the hypocrisy is mind-boggling, and as usual, most of the lies are sins of omission, not commission. There is no blackout, but there's precious little space devoted to what's happening in places like Yemen in the media, so we, almost all of us, myself included, are inundated with images of dead babies in Ukraine. Which drives our empathy and conscience, and our social media postings, which exposes all of us to even more coverage of the war there, which drives more postings, an endless cycle of outrage and sorrow about this war, while similar outrages are quietly forgotten, if they were ever really seen. Our media don't suppress things the way the Chinese and Russians do, at least nowhere to the same extent. Rather, like advertising companies, they plan their campaigns and they promote the narratives they want, narratives that I presume benefit the true elites, those who control almost all media in this country, those who run the extractive industries, weapons manufacture, energy production, our vast mass incarceration penal industry, and more. It's been noted by many that another factor is at play in our Ukraine-heavy coverage, that being implicit racism. Various reporters have inadvertently revealed their racism by comparing civilized Europe to barbarian lands of warlords in places like Africa and Asia. Gee, can someone tell me again where, by the numbers, the most barbarous, villainous, horrendous, genocidal conflicts have arisen in the last 100 years or so? Hmm, yeah. World War I started as a diffuse mass of pissing contests between posturing nations and one might extend that to between posturing men, it went from a minor crisis to a constellation of crises to an all-enveloping, useless, hopeless, stalemated killing machine in seemingly no time. That war, which began barely more than a century ago in 1914, resulted in the estimated deaths of between 15 and 22 million people, all basically for nothing, and nothing on its scale had ever been seen before. The vast and mechanized nature of the carnage, which introduced tanks, airplanes, and chemical weapons into warfare, was so ghastly it was called the war to end all wars. But Europe outdid itself barely more than 20 years later with World War II, which killed an estimated 70 to 85 million people, and included a new innovation, that being the industrialized murder of purely civilian populations through the design and construction of gas chamber and crematoria-equipped death camps. So, yeah, talk all you want about Africa and Asia, but in the end, things like the Rwandan genocide utterly pale in comparison to Europe's barbarity in recent centuries. In my lifetime, my parents' lifetimes, their parents' lifetimes, Europe handily wins as the most efficiently barbaric place on earth. But oh, those Europeans, they apparently look like us. Us being the white-centered, Euro-normative face that so much of those in control of America see in their mirrors. Never mind that we're not far from becoming a minority-majority country, wherein whites will be the largest group but no longer comprise over 50% of the population, our media still clearly value white lives over other lives. Most of the time, that is. Why do I say most of the time? Well, because there's one country with a large European population that's judged on an utterly different scale from all others in their barbarity against people of color, and that is Israel. I am a self-described Julato, being half white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and half Jewish. I have little love for Israel. As much as I am curious about the place, I have never been there because I fundamentally reject their continued occupations and annexations, and their brutality and collective punishment of the Palestinian people. I support the right of return for those expelled from Palestine when Israel was created, and I support the Boycott, Divest, and Sanction or BDS movement that seeks to economically force Israel to change its ways. The Israelis have been brutal in warfare, have created a prison torture establishment that's truly horrifying, and they continue to steal land and water from the Palestinians daily. But while all of this is true, it's also true that Israel is judged completely differently and disproportionately from every other country on earth for its misdeeds. A few rockets are lobbed into Israel, and Israel responds with airstrikes that may kill a handful of people or several hundred, and demonstrations spring up all over America and all over the world, seemingly overnight. Bashar al-Assad can bomb hundreds of thousands of his own people into the Stone Age in Syria, and most of the world, from Arabs to Europeans, stays largely silent. Same of course with what Arabs are doing to Arabs in Yemen. Same with what's happening to the Rohingya in Myanmar. But barely one Palestinian is killed and the entire world is up in arms. Is there a large BDS movement against America for supporting the Saudis? or against the Saudis themselves, or against the Chinese for their horrific ethnic cleansing and forced rape ethnic dilution campaign they're visiting upon the Uyghurs in western China? Of course not. No one cares, and it'd be easy to say it's because the victims aren't white, and yet somehow, if Jews are doing the killing, every Arab life they take is worth quite literally tens of thousands of Syrian or Yemeni Arab lives. Many of my lefty friends here in America claim that Israel is a special case because we give them so much foreign aid. I call bullshit on this for two reasons. One, it's a bit of a distinction without a difference to me if we sell weapons to one country, Saudi Arabia, and give them to another, Israel, if they're both killing people with them. A much more meaningful distinction is that the weapons we're selling to the House of Saud are killing orders of magnitude more people. All of this Arab death is a direct result of American foreign policy, and it utterly dwarfs the death and destruction Israel visits upon the Palestinians. Does that not make what the Saudis are doing more horrific? More important for us to demonstrate against? More important to stop? The second reason, these anti-Israel demonstrations crop up all over the world. Citizens from countries that don't give a cent of foreign aid to Israel are still far more concerned with the death of 5 or 100 Palestinians than with the death of 1,000 Yemenis. It's blatant hypocrisy. It's also far more predominant on the left than on the right, and in all of my decades as a lefty, I've seen this latent anti-Semitism rife within the left. I saw it when I was a volunteer at left-wing Pacifica radio station WBAI. I saw it in the various groups I worked with fighting nuclear proliferation and nuclear power. And I tended to see it more with people of color in these groups than with white people within them. But I'm not sure why that is so. I do not believe it's merely anti-Zionist, either. I've heard too many blatantly bigoted comments about Jews from fellow lefties to believe that. The right has its own anti-Semitic forces of course, there's QAnon, which is essentially a recycling of the blood libel that Jews have been accused of for perhaps more than a thousand years, a fable of Jewish rapacity that has energized centuries of murderous pogroms, and energized the Holocaust itself, and of course there's also your more garden-variety bigots, Nazis, and Klansmen. But it's those on the left who piss me off because they either lie to themselves about their implicit bigotry towards Jews, or they rationalize the shit out of it with thin distinctions that are belied by inverse consequences, i.e. our aid to Israel kills a fuck of a lot less Arabs than our weapons sales and other proppings up of the Saudis do. So let's get real. The Left likes to pretend it's all about social justice. But if so, wouldn't the fervor and frequency of demonstrations against suffering around the world be based on the extent of the suffering, not on who's meting out that suffering? Shouldn't we bring the most force to bear against the most brutal and efficient murderers and in support of the most numerous and grievously abused victims? But that's not what the Left does at all. And interestingly, it's not even what our media do. Supposedly, Jews control the entire media apparatus of the U.S.A. If so, it's curious that every outlet from CNN to Mother Jones seems to value lives taken by Israeli barbarity and even those taken by Israel in self-defense and as a response to murderous provocation far, far more than all other non-white lives on Earth. It's particularly odd since the left has been so full of Jews fighting for everything from civil rights to gay rights and against everything from genocidal wars to nuclear proliferation. Jews were at the forefront of white participation in the civil rights movement, from their authorship of the seminal Billie Holiday song, Strange Fruit, to the murders of two Jewish activists along with a black activist during the Freedom Summer of 1964. In fact, it could be fairly argued that Martin Luther King and his fellow activists wouldn't have succeeded in changing the face of America from legalizing interracial marriage to desegregating schools to getting the Voting Rights Act written and passed without the extensive support they received from Jews in the form of funding and bodies on the ground organizing and demonstrating. Yet despite their social activism bona fides, Jews and Judaism are still targets of white and non-white bigots alike. There's tons of anti-Semitism in the black community here in America and abroad, for example. Israel's siege mentality, the Jewish people's millennia-long case of ethnic PTSD enshrined in endlessly re-traumatizing repetition in places like Yad Vashem, is often used by Israelis to justify the most barbaric behavior as self-defense. The phrase, never again, morphs into, by any means necessary, or, the ends justify the means. In this way, unforgivable sins of warfare and torture are excused. I get why this incenses people, because it incenses me, too. But as a Jew with no fondness for either Israel or Zionism, I am still far more incensed by the vast double standard I see here. Jews and Israel are simply judged differently than all others on earth when it comes to war, insurrection, ethnic conflict, and annexation. From the United Nations to the streets of most European capitals to seemingly the entire Arab world, masses of people come out to wring their hands when Israel kills even a handful of Palestinians, yet are curiously absent and silent when Bashar al Assad kills something like 400,000 of his countrymen, or for that matter, when his father Hafez al Assad killed over 40,000 Syrians in 1982 with conventional and chemical weapons, murdering the entire population of a restive town named Hama. Every life is precious. I do not blithely discount the unjust and brutal death of a handful of people or even a single person. But I am concerned with doing the greatest good and focusing on the greatest evil. And I am appalled by what I see as an unjust and persistent implicit anti-Jewish sentiment among liberals the world over, as well as, of course, throughout the Arab world. Israel, Israelis, and Jews in general are simply judged more harshly than almost all others when it comes to their foreign and domestic actions. Note that I am not supporting these actions, far from it, but I see that they are judged disproportionately over and over, and I think that at its root the cause of this is conscious and unconscious anti-Semitism. Of course, as a Jew, I've also had to contend with the not-so-subtle insult of right-wing Jews, the famous label of self-hating Jew. According to these people, any Jew who doesn't approve of Zionism and who doesn't approve of virtually everything the state of Israel does, full stop, is a curious type of anti-Semite, the self-hating Jew. Given what some would say has been the Jewish intellectual preoccupation with law and justice and ethics throughout history, the idea that a Jew who points out the ethical misbehavior of other Jews and the Jewish state is self-hating makes no logical sense. Yet these attacks from right-wing Jews don't bother me much. I'm not a Zionist and I'm not a right-winger. This is not my tribe, so to speak. But I am concerned, sometimes frightened, sometimes enraged by the double standard the left liberal Jewish and non-Jewish world places on Israel in particular, which at least among many on the left often seems to get extended out to all Jews. If the left is truly about stopping human suffering, supporting human rights and human dignity, uplifting people, stopping war and genocide, why are there not demonstrations going on constantly about Arabs killing Arabs in Syria and Yemen? the fate of the Uyghurs in China, the Rohingya in Myanmar, the Tigray in Ethiopia, and the list goes on and on and on. American leftists can argue that Israel gets this huge share of foreign aid and deserves special attention, and I think it does merit the boycotts, divestments, and sanctions, and demonstrating to curtail or eliminate U.S. aid. It's my personal dream that all aid be stopped to Israel until they leave the occupied territories, leaving their towns and cities there intact for the Palestinians. Not that I think that will ever happen. Certainly the least America could do is freeze all loan guarantees and aid, as George Herbert Walker Bush once threatened to do, until all new Israeli settlement construction in the occupied territories ceases completely. This is a measured, rational, doable approach. One that I wish the US government would implement immediately. Not that I think there's a snowball's chance in hell of that happening anytime soon either. However, given that these anti-Israeli demonstrations pop up worldwide, with much hand-wringing about Arab deaths, while the world is mostly silent about Arab-on-Arab killing in places like Syria and Yemen, as well as other non-white deaths in places like China, Myanmar, the Congo and Ethiopia, I think this is blatant evidence of conscious anti-Semitism among some and of a kind of internalized subconscious form of it among others. justice mattered, people would have united around the world and strenuously called for a boycott of the recent Olympics in China, and for at least a partial BDS campaign against China as well, as the Chinese are perpetrating what looks to be the greatest ethnic cleansing program since the Holocaust against the Uyghurs. There would have been a boycott of Saudi oil and gas way before the Russian invasion of Ukraine made these commodities skyrocket in price. Remember, there was a glut during the first year and a half of COVID, the perfect time to launch such a boycott. There is murder, mayhem, collective punishment, ethnic cleansing, and ethnic dilution in the form of organized mass rape going on all over the world. If we on the left wish to call ourselves ethical beings, we must prioritize based on the scale of suffering, death, and human rights abuses. The identity of the perpetrator as friend or foe is secondary. What the perpetrator is doing is what's most important. In this context, I am upset with myself, because I am more outraged day in and day out by what I see going on in Ukraine. Why is that? Is it because the vast majority of those under bombardment there look like me? I've actually looked long and hard at this, and my conclusion is no. Show me a picture of a murdered Yemeni child, and my responses of sorrow and rage appear to be the same. The answer in my case, and I dare say for many of you, is that my media are showing me hundreds, thousands of videos, images, and stories from Ukraine for every one from Yemen, Western China, Myanmar, etc., and they may indeed be showing me much more of these stories because the victims are, by and large, white. There may be other reasons too, though, such as the fact that, as stated, Europe has been the flashpoint for the two most destructive wars since the Industrial Revolution began, as well as many smaller but significant conflicts. The collective unease of a possible third world war, given the close proximity of the two most nuclear-armed nations on earth in this conflict, is grounds for increased scrutiny. The war is clearly now a war not only between Russia and Ukraine, but serving as yet another proxy war between Russia and the United States. There is clearly rational cause for concern here. Yet I think we can all see it goes beyond collective anxiety. The racist coverage of people who look like us or this war taking place in civilized Europe is clearly sometimes overt, sometimes coded racist language whether consciously or unconsciously spoken. So, just as with so many other subjects, I'm being led by the nose by my media, and so are you. They're showing us the graphic details of the horrors in Ukraine, and they're calling Putin a war criminal, which he is, but isn't Joe Biden? Is his cynical sale of almost three-quarters of a billion dollars of arms and weapons system maintenance contracts to a murderous regime that is purposely bombing and starving out civilians just as Putin's regime is a war crime? Surely, if Putin's oligarchs deserve sanctions because they're his enablers, and getting fat off of his war machine and kleptocracy, then all of the purchasers of Saudi oil and gas are equally culpable, as those who make money extracting and selling that gas for the Saudis, and most of all, those who provide the Saudis with so-called defensive weapons that just so happen to be highly effective as offensive ones. Where are the sanctions against the United States of America? Why wasn't Obama's absurd, unearned Nobel Peace Prize rescinded after he killed far more civilians in Iraq and Afghanistan and in far-flung places like Somalia through drone strikes than his predecessor George W. Bush did? Where is justice? Where is the media? Asleep? Nope. They're just quietly omitting basic facts so Americans can feel good about themselves, enabling our own plausible deniability about our own country's myriad sins and much of the media in Europe are doing much the same for their populations. I remember learning, maybe 10 or 15 years after it was decided by the Supreme Court, that while Bush v. Gore was being heard by that court, Clarence Thomas's wife, the newly infamous right-wing nut Ginny, was actively working for the Bush campaign, and Judge Scalia had a close friendship with Dick Cheney, which had gone on for decades before the case came before the court. Why weren't these facts trumpeted on the front page of every newspaper, website, and cable news show in the USA? This case, which abrogated states' rights entirely and decided an incredibly consequential and contentious election in favor of the Bush-Cheney campaign, was being decided by a court with two members with glaring conflicts of interest in the case. Why wasn't every center and left-of-center publication loudly editorializing demands for the immediate recusal of Justices Thomas and Scalia in this case? Why weren't we, the American people, informed? I'm not sure why The Atlantic and The New Yorker and The New York Times and The Washington Post and so many others were virtually silent on this issue of utmost importance to our democracy. One might even say that Bush v. Gore was the case that politicized the Supreme Court to the point that its naked partisanship eroded its moral high ground permanently and people stopped trusting the institution's impartiality altogether. Given the import of the case, and those extreme conflicts of interest, the silence is truly mysterious. I don't exactly know what was going on, but I suspect that in some part the reticence of the media can be explained by the fact that big oil and gas— and other elites who control much of that media, were fundamentally more comfortable with oil man Bush than with increasingly environmentalist gore. There may be many other, less obvious reasons, things I'm not privy to and can't fathom, but with all the brouhaha going on about Clarence Thomas and his wife at this moment, I am constantly reminded of what might have happened had the press and the people demanded that these justices do the only honorable thing and recuse themselves. Doubtless the case would have been handed back to the Florida State Supreme Court, and we might have ended up with a President Gore instead of the inept, useful idiot George W. Bush and his Machiavellian Darth Vader, Dick Cheney. Based on the past, straight up to the present, I have now come to the reluctant conclusion that my media are, in their way, presenting a reality that is just as biased as Fox, Newsmax, OAN, and other right-wing organs do. No, the mainstream centrist and center-left outlets don't tend to spread the utterly loony conspiracy theories that Fox, Newsmax, and OAN fellow travelers like Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell invent out of whole cloth they don't spread anything quite as egregiously false as the Big Lie and many of its subtexts, such as the supposed connection of Dominion voting systems with the Chavez government in Venezuela. Rather, as with Bush v. Gore, the center and center-left media tend to sin by omission, not commission, They'll trumpet Leah Thomas's swimming victories while failing to include her teammates and other competitors' feelings about swimming against and sharing a locker room with a giant who physically went through puberty as a man, conferring athletic advantages that are immutable, and who also retains an intact penis. They'll talk about the tragedy in Ukraine, but basically only whisper about the suffering of non-whites in general in conflicts the world over, let alone the suffering of Yemenis and others directly due to American arms sales. They told Americans that the internment of Japanese citizens was justified, while never calling for similar internments of German or Italian Americans because the Japanese didn't look like us in their minds and the minds of much of the white majority. They told us that Hiroshima and Nagasaki were necessary, that those two bombs saved the lives of a million American soldiers, when the truth is that the Japanese were actively suing for peace before either bomb was dropped, and the bombs were more of a signal to the Russians that the USA was top dog than anything else. Our center and center-left media are awash in omissions. I listen to the podcasts Pod Save America and Pod Save the World and on the media all the time, and their takes on things like trans women in sports or the war in Ukraine mostly parrot the liberal establishment. They never question whether the Democrats in power might be deemed war criminals, or that biological women's rights might be being abridged in some areas by trans women, or take on many other thorny intersectional questions. Rather, they seem to only talk to those who agree with them, preferring to construct their own simplified, flattened reality echo chambers to counter the right-wing's echo chambers. This is the opposite of what I'm trying to do on this podcast. I'm trying to challenge assumptions that don't make sense to me and perceived injustices all over the political spectrum. I am less interested in who is doing things than in what they are doing. Are their actions just and fair? Are they racist, sexist, genocidal, what have you? Are they abridging the rights of others while demanding their own? Is their narrative accurate? I am hoping that this podcast will help all of us become more discerning and less trusting of our own preferred media, goading us to do as much of our own investigating and thinking as possible. I no longer trust my media sources from Mother Jones to The Guardian to CNN to The New Yorker. I find them all exhibiting huge biases, and this is no more evident than right now, when the hand-wringing over Ukraine is completely obscuring much more horrific suffering around the world, much of it bankrolled by the United States and its allies. So if you think this work is important, please give this podcast a good review on Apple Podcasts, and please share it with your friends. I will have a Patreon account set up very soon, which you'll be able to find a link to at both TheDailyScreamer.com and dissident.info, which are, in fact, the same site. If only a small number of you chipped in $5 a month, I could do this work full-time and hire researchers and production staff to make it an even better podcast than this one-man show can ever be. So please consider supporting The Cognitive Dissident. And remember that you can always email me at info at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and as ever, please be good to your neighbor. The music for today's show is a bunch of odds and sods from an out-of-print edition of various experimental and classical works of mine, which was called 27th Century Liturgical Chants of Various Pan-Galactic Religions, Volume 2. The Cognitive Dissident is written, recorded, voiced, edited, and produced by me, Samuel Claiborne, for Disreputable Media.